0: This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu prehealth Hello there listeners, this is Dean Wertz and you are listening to Pen Pals, bringing you Philadelphia's stories from a distance. And today we have Jacob Glickman of the Attic Center in uh, Center City, Philadelphia. And uh, let's start by introducing Jacob, take it away. Oh,
1: first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So my name is Jacob, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a therapist in Philadelphia. I work almost exclusively at this point within the LGBTQIA community and one of my first clinical experiences actually in the city of Philadelphia was when I was an intern at the Attic Youth Center and fell in love with it. It is an incredible space and have ever since tried to stay in touch with it, um, either through doing clinical work, through running groups there, through volunteering there. And yeah, hope to be a continued representative of the ways in which The Attic continues to change the community, especially from a therapeutic standpoint. Amazing.
0: And uh, for your master's and for your current doctor, what were the theses that you've been like defending?
1: Awesome. So I got my master's at LaSalle. I originally moved to Philadelphia about eight years ago to pursue like education up here. And so my master's was in clinical counseling, and then after completing that master's, I went to, I moved on to Widener University for my doctorate. So I am completing a doctorate in clinical psychology. I have two more years on that, which mostly includes a lot of writing at this point. Um, And then I am also getting another master's in human sexuality with the option of turning that into a doctorate as well. So I'll be in school forever but I love it um, and a large part of the reason why I love it, my current, my doctorate um, and my dissertation is going to be on turning Dungeons and Dragons, like the board game or like the, the tabletop game into a form of therapy, specifically for kids that are queer, which <laughs> includes the kids at the Attic Youth Center. And that was one of the first places that I pioneered using this as a form of therapy And that it was an incredible experience. All the kids that I played with there taught me so much. And hopefully also got something out of it. But that um, it was an incredible experience and really showed me just how therapeutic the game can be for especially people of different experiences that may not connect to therapy Mm -hmm. in sort of their daily lives or may not have access to it in other ways.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And we'll get much more into that uh, later on in the interview, but just to introduce the listeners to what the Attic Center is and what it stands for, uh, if you want to just take it away on that point.
1: So the Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only LGBTQIA, which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual, so and then the plus is for all the other community members including like um, pansexual, agender, two-spirit, all of the other ways that one can be sort of within this larger umbrella community. Um, So it is a space specifically for LGBTQIA plus youth. And it offers services ranging from helping kids um, find housing and connect as far as housing. Um, They do free HIV testing and counseling, free meals for the kids. There's social groups. There are therapy groups. There's also a clinical center there specifically for therapy, um, both individual and then also group, which is run by Shana Williams, who is an incredible clinician there. But so the attic offers all of these different opportunities for kids who otherwise would not maybe have a place to form community in that same way. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the kids who go to the attic, there are all sorts of different intersections um, of identities. So for instance, the kids who go to the attic, even though it is sort of labeled as a queer space, which we can also talk about the word queer too, if you'd like, um, that Oftentimes these are kids that come from all different backgrounds, some that are low income, that are all different ages. Um, Oftentimes the kids who are going to the attic for the groups especially are age 14 to 23. However, for individual therapy, they can be younger. Mm -hmm. So all different ages, all different stages of development, all different like races, all different educational backgrounds, all different religions, all different ability statuses, all different ways of expressing queerness and different gender identities and sexual orientations. So it is a place both where kids can meet people like them and create community with people like them, while also finding out more about other people who share many of their same communities and also are diverse for different reasons.
0: Yeah, I think that's, uh, you brought up a good point there earlier. I actually don't even really know what the true definition of queer is <laughs> because I always assumed it was a synonymous with gay, but i I'm, I don't know if that is an outdated ideology of arms <laughs> put in arms <laughs> in lightning.
1: so queer has in some ways become an umbrella term that both talks about sexual orientation, certainly, and also has an aspect of. Politics has an aspect of community, has an aspect of direct action, that queerness in some ways is a life that you live, that you are fully immersed in. And that one can be into like male on male sex, one could be into female and female sex, whatever, however you're identifying your sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. And also that doesn't necessarily mean that you are identifying as queer. Mm -hmm. And also the attic itself is a very queer space that believes and focuses on the messages of like Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter, creating accessibility and creating intentionality in the way in which people communicate and think about space and think about carving out space. So even though I think for older generations still, the word queer may be and may reflect on times where queer was, for instance, the word that was being used as a slur against them, and also especially for the younger generation, and that even though we, like you, me, the listeners, probably still consider ourselves young to some extent, we're thinking right now about, like, 14-year-olds that yeah. are inheriting this space, mm-hmm. um, that. For a lot of them, queer is a term of empowerment and really fully encapsulates so many of their identities and also the life that they are choosing to live.
0: Mm -hmm. So it's also partially a kind of minority equality idea, as well as the sexual behavior behind it and everything like that. Interesting. I I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) No, yeah, that it, it really, that queerness really is about, like you said, sort of the ideology, the community, the politics, the action, and that all of that goes in. Whereas, because I think a lot of people still think about sexual orientation as like who you have sex with. And that for a lot of people, it absolutely is. Like I said, you might identify and say, I am a man or I'm a male and I have sex with other men or males. Mm -hmm. And that that may be sort of the way that you express your sexuality. And also you could live within sort of a heteronormative system that you may not be actively involved in queerness and so i think for a lot of the kids who go to the attic that because of their age because of their generation because of different statuses and different intersectionalities that they are all very involved in queerness and in the community which is one of the reasons why i think that term sort of operates well within the scope of the attic Mm -hmm. So I am curious, though, like,
0: does does queerness have the strict definition of also sexual orientation? Like, as a straight white male, would I, in any sense, be considered, like, in an area of queerness? Or does it, like, you've checked all the boxes, now you are...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think actually is something that the community has grappled with in the recent years is who gets to be included within this umbrella of queerness and that a lot of times in terms of the LGBTQIA acronym, which once again lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, sometimes also questioning intersex and asexual or aromantic, that a lot of times ally is thrown in or attached to the A. Mm -hmm. And that I think that that's something that the community itself has been discussing and thinking about is for people that do live within the community and offer allyship and accomplishment, and are the people that help organize, are the people that help support, are the people that have, for instance, political connections, that if in all but who you have sex with, you operate as part of this community, can you still be a part of it? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a question that people will definitely continue to discuss and continue to grapple with, and also that there is something so critical about allyship, that even if you do not fall under the queer umbrella, to live by queer politics and queer lifestyle, and also to use privilege and power as somebody who is heterosexual, that that is an incredible gift and an incredible both duty and responsibility to give to the community.
0: Got it. And I think that actually segues into the next point I wanted to talk about was that do you believe that uh, mentorship of the LGBTQAI plus community, um, you have to be part of that community to mentor in it? Like, do you think that it's... You have to have that level of empathy, of shared experience, because I can't imagine that it's easy (laughs) to be a part of that community. Even in our modern times, it's not easy because, I mean, with queerness, there is an aspect of minority, and I can't imagine that's easy. And having someone kind of from an outside perspective, I can't imagine that's as easy to come in and mentor, even if they've read a bunch of books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And... I mean, I think you bring up a really good point in that it actually ties into clinical work. And I think as people that are in the medical field, that it is something that is a really interesting question of, can you relate to your clients? Can you relate to your patients, even if you don't have the shared experience? Mm -hmm. And I think that, at least for me and sort of my clinical training, that is a question that also gets sort of grappled with a lot of times. And that Ultimately, I think the answer, which for therapy, the answer of everything is, it depends. But and this is another situation where it depends. Mm-hmm. That At least for me as a person who is queer, as a person who is trans, that when I work specifically within my community, so often people say, I don't know if I could have told this to somebody who was not part of the community because I think there is this assumed level of protection in some ways, an assumed level of shared experience, whether that is true or not, that I think having that base level of safety or perceived safety oftentimes allows mentorship to happen or allows a clinical relationship to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that for people who are outside of the community, especially if you are interested, have have done all this research, want to specifically support the community, that I think, like I said, it is a wonderful both gift and responsibility to support the community as an ally and as an accomplice. Mm -hmm. And also for some things that you may end up referring to somebody within the community if that's what somebody specifically needs in their care in that moment. Mm -hmm. And also we talk about it as the trans broken leg syndrome that if you are going in to have your leg looked at because you were skateboarding and fractured it, mm-hmm. it probably doesn't have a lot to do with your queerness in that moment. But you as a person always embody your queerness and in this case, your transness. Mm-hmm. And also that I think in those situations, how a doctor can be an ally and an accomplice mm-hmm. is to say, I'm listening to you, this is what you're here for, let's set your bone. Yeah. Because none of the rest of it right now is relevant to what's happening in this moment.
0: I think that's incredibly fascinating that you use that exact example of the broken leg because I was thinking of that exact idea when I was putting together a kind of itinerary about, okay, so if someone comes in with a broken leg, it's it's a little bit more it's a little less gray, you know? Yeah. I'm treating you leg. <laughs> What's going on? I don't need to personally break my leg to know how to fix your leg. Yes. You know? So it's and I thought that it's different with the mentorship of the LGBTQA plus community because there is a lot more going on than just mm-hmm. the patella in the wrong place.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, in some ways, I think that in terms of therapy, oftentimes there is that intimacy of wanting a community member whether it be I'm trans and I want a trans therapist, whether it be I'm a person of color and I want a, color, a person of color who's a therapist, whether it be I'm thinking of one of my professors who talks about um, his own experience with diabetes and oftentimes works with people within sort of this intersection of physical health and mental health because that is his own experience and it gives him this ability to relate. So I think in terms of mentorship, if the mentee is looking specifically for mentorships surrounding queerness and the ways in which queerness affects their lives, then, of course, having somebody within the community is important. If it is, for instance, a young queer person who is interested in, like, going to Penn and going to Penn's post-bacc- post-baccalaureate program and is thinking about how to get again to medical school, then in that case, of course, queerness is still in effect and also that your mentorship as somebody who has lived that experience becomes so valuable and that the most important thing is holding space for all of the different identities that the person brings to the room. Mm
0: -hmm. Just talk to me about activities in the attic that help build community and things like that. And then we can kind of transition to D and D. Absolutely.
1: The attic is, like I said, an incredible space and it is a space where everyone in some ways realizes how special it is. And so as far as creating community, I mean, first thing I will say is for people with food insecurity or who don't know where their next meal is coming from, to be able to not just have a place to go and eat, but to have a place to go and eat with peers, I think that there is still something very special about breaking bread with somebody. It's been a cultural tradition for humans for the last bazillion years that I, I mean, I guess humans have been around for what, like a hundred thousand years, the past 100,000 years that we've been humans. I think that that is something that is really special. And in addition to that, I'm thinking of the groups too that there are groups surrounding like men and masculinity there are groups surrounding transness and gender expansiveness, that there are groups surrounding like D&D and other special interests, that there are dance groups, movement groups, art groups. Um, there is always like a voguing group that happens on Friday, that there are open video game calls that occur, that throughout all of this, part of it I think is about focusing on community in groups that have to do more like for instance, Men and masculinity, or if there's a special panel or talk about what it means to be like HIV positive, Mm -hmm. or what it means to enter into therapy as a queer young individual, or if someone's talking about like bullying within the community, any of these things, Mm -hmm. then I think it is about sort of one's own edification and growth. And also that there's something equally important about getting up and moving with your peers, about like, for instance, vogue and ballroom culture that all of that is so incredibly important Um, and so in some ways when there is a group and you see all the kids come out and they're all like wearing wigs or heels like that is an incredibly important moment of celebrating culture and that I think that is just as important as the groups that I think we think about targeting mental health a little bit more directly or physical health a little bit more directly because those are the groups that allow them to not just be kids together and be queer kids together that those are the groups that allow for some attachment to interest and some attachment to what's your history look like.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotcha and I think that that goes well into uh, talking about D&D in the sense that uh, as I was looking over what we would talk about, kind of seemed to me as a very interesting like, therapeutic aid in the sense that it has low consequence way, <laughs> why it's like an environment where you can have character experimentation. Like you can kind of dive into this world without really fear of judgment because anyone in that group right there is along for the ride.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So I need to ask have you ever played
0: I have played once but I was not a fan of the dungeon master so (laughs) but I just it it was it was okay it was good I enjoyed the process of it to me it's I need a lot of structure and Mm -hmm. it's it's how it how it works so I I don't know I enjoy it as an idea like I've I've always been for me what's therapeutic is what I call Dino time. I'll jump into like a very in-depth video game. Mm-hmm. Lights are off. Like it's just me playing none of that online stuff. Four hours, decompress, ready to go. Cause I'm very introverted extrovert. So I like to, mm-hmm. I like to go out, but I like to decompress on my own side. So I, I appreciate though Dungeons and Dragons. And it's interesting how it's kind of coming back to life now, because when I was growing up, was kind of almost on a downfall, mm-hmm. but then it kind of, as I'm seeing, also being as a computer science major in undergrad, it was a huge community when I was in college, and mm-hmm. um, I think now I also wanted to ask you if you were involved with it growing up, because I saw all the stuff about what you're doing now with it, how you're using it for therapy, but was it a big part of your childhood?
1: So it, that's an interesting question. So I've always, I've been very always oriented towards theater. Mm -hmm. And so theater and the arts have always been a huge part of my life. And also that I think once I got to college and we started forming friend groups and I grew up down south, so it is very hard to find other queer and trans people that are out. And so once I got to college and there was a little bit more accessibility to the community, that at that point, we started forming groups. And one of my best friends, still one of my best friends today, um, started a group based on Warhammer 40K, which...
0: (laughs) Yes, the miniatures. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. And so we started with that and then expanded outward and ended up in all sorts of different campaigns and different configurations. And of course, the main challenge and enemy that everyone who has ever played D&D knows is that scheduling is the ultimate thing you're going to come up against. It's quite the time sink. <laughs> and the, I think that's part of it is that it is a commitment. And also that's one of the reasons why I started thinking about it in terms of group therapy, because there is something so similar about the safety That is intended to be in a group therapy space and the way in which the group and the members dedicate themselves to each other and to their mutual growth and mutual benefit that is very similar to the way in which people dedicate themselves to their party yeah and especially as somebody who has always loved theater the arts and fantasy Mm -hmm. but i think you're absolutely right it is a way of exploring identity and self while also having sort of that layer of safety built in. Yeah. And that people have been doing that and using it as such since it was created in the late 60s.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting um, that you bring up the transition of the love of theater because I was very big into theater when I was in high school as well, because it was a very interesting outlet, but it was this coordinated team effort because there was no, although there was like a star or, the most lines on the script whatever (laughs) you want to say about it but without the parts moving together it really doesn't feel as cohesive and my exposure to dungeons and dragons it is a it is a kind of tit for tat collaboration and if people are meshing well then the dungeon master also has like a better flow to them as well so i think that it's it's a very interesting uh kind of experiment to use it as a sort of therapy. And how long have you been doing Dungeons and Dragons as a uh, therapeutic measure?
1: As a, as a therapy or as a human? (laughs) As a human. human. Let's go with that. As a human, I've been doing Dungeons and Dragons now for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that it is incredible to watch people that have grown up with it, especially and especially when you look at people who've grown up with it that have said, like, I have never fit in anywhere else, and this was the place where I fit in, that I think those are the moments where you can really see how special it is. Yeah. And that, to your point, I think it is resurging, in part because of Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And that that was the moment where people are like, oh, yeah, this used to be cool, and yeah. <laughs> I've jumped back in. But, and they're... A lot of times when I talk about Dungeons & Dragons, people think of video games mm-hmm. and think about RPG or role-playing games that are electronic. I think Stranger Things is one of, was one of those cultural moments where people remembered, oh, this is actually about pen, paper, and sitting around in a circle and telling a story. Yeah. And that you can do that electronically and also that you don't need to.
0: I think what you touched on about a sense of community and where you feel comfortable. And it's, it's funny to think about how it really can be anywhere that you feel right. Like for me growing up, figuring my own stuff out. And for me it was a hockey team and in high school and I was terrible at hockey. I was <laughs> there for a showcase of skill. <laughs> it, was, it just, it brought a lot better feelings for me having that community of people there that were there to have a good time and enjoy what they were doing, working towards a similar goal. So I think, I think Dungeons and Dragons in a very peripheral way accomplishes the same thing and it creates that community and it's uh, it's great. And I think um, I also did a little bit of digging and saw that you were an anime fan. Yes. And I wanted to kind of touch on that for a minute about how, a huge theme of anime growing up on it myself Mm -hmm. that it's usually about an individual overcoming adversity is a theme that I've always seen, whether it be Dragon Ball Z with Goku being Mm -hmm. a monkey alien (laughs) uh, or Naruto, him being an outcast and you don't know at first why, and he's dealing with isolation and a lot of characters and uh, other shapes of the medium go through this. Do you think that, was an attractant for you?
1: Abs- abs- <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I a lot of the kids and like young adults with whom I've worked are very into manga and anime. I think one of the main attractors is because it is both this very different world, and also there are those moments of humanity and relatability, mm-hmm. and that that is something that I think anime. Oftentimes balances really well is both to feel like you are fantastical and that you have these powers and you have these abilities and also that there is this vulnerability in this humanity and this need to connect that is endemic within it mm-hmm. and that I think that and I appreciate that you brought up the hockey team that I was actually talking with a client earlier this morning about his experiences at Sleepaway Camp, Mm -hmm. and that I think there is something really important in that no matter where you go for community, that it's those moments where you are a part of something and feel like you can do incredible things bigger than yourself, that I think those are the moments that really stick with people and are formative. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I think anime, manga, watching things, playing video games, and also Dungeons and Dragons are so influential is because those are moments where even if you feel like I physically can't do something, or I don't have this capacity, or I don't know how to relate to people, that it gives you this medium through which to do it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that, I think, is where so much of the value in Dungeons and Dragons is, because it is you as a person putting yourself into this character who then from there relates to the rest of the characters and it's sort of a roundabout way of creating real relationships. Mm -hmm. And also you might be like a warlock and doing incredible things (laughs) and have your fire powers. And that's great.
0: And I think that it's uh, what Dungeons and Dragons and video games share is that kind of tasks in a vacuum. Because with the the burden of reality, you may wake up to accomplish A, B, and C, but D through Z are going to prevent you from doing those things exactly how you planned on doing it. And that was a huge thing for me growing up, and I really appreciate what you're doing there with Dungeons & Dragons is that, okay, so we're raiding the dungeon, then we're raiding the dungeon. And it's very nice to see the steps necessary to accomplish a goal, knowing what you need to do. For me growing up playing Zelda and having a notebook and writing <laughs> the steps I need to get the water stone, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it, it felt very nice to be able to escape to a simpler, yet at the same time, so much more complex <laughs> existence for a minute. So I think that's, that's very powerful. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about also how, not covering up, but kind of sidetracking serious issues for LGBTQAI plus community mm-hmm. with Dungeons and Dragons and using it as therapy in terms of you're kind of building in fantasy into it. And in some circles they could be, well, you're not really facing the issue, are you, Jacob? Like the idea yeah, <laughs> I'm playing, like, people would be like, this isn't therapy. This is Dungeons and Dragons, you know? And how you see it is is a good way to get around just directly saying things. Is it a good, I don't know what I'm saying, So I think you know what I'm saying.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I think it's a really important question, because oftentimes, in a similar way to therapy in general, people are like, well, you're just talking, Mm -hmm. that there's this question of what are you actually doing? And that the Attic sort of circling back, one of the incredible people who has been so instrumental in the Attic is Crystal Sparrow, who it was their resident nerd for a very (laughs) long time um, in addition to one of the specialists um, who helped sort of create programming for the kids. And she founded AtticCon, which is its own little con that existed within the Attic Youth Center. And so that was sort of one of the birthplaces of Dungeons and Dragons as therapy, at least for me, was through that setting. And what I found in especially playing at the attic is that those issues do get brought up and oftentimes do get brought up very directly. Mm-hmm. That, and I think that part of it is that for people that otherwise might have challenges talking about it, in so blunt terms that once you have that lens of a character that oftentimes it does become a much more direct conversation Mm -hmm. than really could be had if it were just for instance you and i talking that if i am jacob the psychomancer and i have all of these incredible powers and also I see this daunting task in front of me, or I know that people won't accept me, or I know that there's going to be questions about what I do, then I think it gives me space to think about it and talk about the ways in which I, as myself, would solve these problems or communicate or build relationships. And also, I'm thinking especially of, for trans kids, there's oftentimes such a high correlation with kids being on the autism spectrum autism spectrum and being trans and that I know as myself being someone who's a neurotypical and also trans that having that lens and having that little bit of separation actually makes it so much easier to talk and that part of in creating this therapeutic version of a role playing game it's about figuring out how to create modules that actually reflect real life challenges. That for instance, if you were doing a module on depression mm-hmm. that you might be exploring a town where the gravity keeps getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And what do you do when you're slowed down like that? What do you do when there is this feeling of depression that is over this place? What do you do if your main enemy is the darkness? And running towards it at full speed and trying to fight it or running away from it doesn't work. How do you cope with that? So I think there are these ways of putting these issues directly into the game, which is part of the reason why, even though Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs, role-playing games, have been used informally as therapy, I think, since their, since their creation, <laughs> that as far, as far as I know, to my knowledge, there is not any role-playing game that was created specifically to be therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the benefit of using this format and turning it into a form of group therapy with a specific intention of creating a game from the ground up for therapy because it allows you to directly put those issues in in a way that otherwise might be less direct.
0: And I think that its, it's level of mystique, though, being embedded in Dungeons & Dragons is also kind of nice because I don't know how attractive to the youths a game called like, handling depression the board. <laughs> So I think it's I think it's nice that you have that. And I got chills when you said just like imagine a town where the gravity mm-hmm. keeps on increasing and you can't you can't run, you can't like go right at it. I think that's powerful stuff, Jacob.
1: <laughs> it's pretty incredible. And I think a lot of times when people also think about working with LGBTQA youth, that a lot of times there is questions of how do you address like homophobia, transphobia, things like that. And one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard was on a panel at PAX Unplugged, Mm -hmm. which is a convention that happens yearly, maybe this year, who knows, in Philadelphia. um, And it's specifically for board games and role-playing games and other like analog games, I guess you could say. And that in a panel on creating a queer fantasy world for your RPG, for your role-playing game, that one of the listeners to this panel asked the question of, well, if you create a world without homophobia, for instance, isn't that unrealistic? Doesn't that make it, like, doesn't that separate it from the real world? Is it being in some ways like homocentric to create a world where all the characters are gay? And one of the panelists described that oftentimes with role-playing games, we create the world that we want to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And that if you are playing a game specifically to talk about homophobia, for instance, then absolutely that would be a part of the world. And also that especially for LGBTQIA plus kids, they live in a world with homophobia, with transphobia, with people who fear their identities and thus hate their identities in all of their different intersections. And that I think, especially in games and in spaces of play and in spaces of community, that it is so important to also create space where those constructs don't exist and where those kids can just be themselves as their characters and that for instance i remember one of the last games we played at the attic um we played using the dungeon world format which is a brilliant format it's free to play online Mm -hmm. and that one of the kids who was playing he was an immolator a salamander immolator which is sort of like a fire mage Mm -hmm. and that his entire goal throughout all of the campaign was to like explore his sexuality with all these different people of all these different genders and all these different sexualities and was like living his best life. And at no point was there any worry or concern that one of the NPC's non player characters would call him out and say like, what are you doing? That's gross. That's homophobic. You're not even the same species as these other people. But it was a world where he was sort of free to act however he would.
0: You know, that sounds a lot like a reversal of dystopia because, I mean, growing up, I always enjoyed dystopias because they, they took a chunk of society and then extremed it to make it a bad place, you know? Mm-hmm. And then kind of what it seems like you're doing is you're letting a world being shaped by the ideals of the players that they want to see, which I think is, is very interesting. And I think that it's, it's, like, easier to wrap my head around than I think, you know.
1: And I really appreciate you saying that because i do think there's room for both and i think that that's in some ways part of media and the way we use media as a much broader conversation is thinking about what we need in this moment i mean it makes me think of the creators of black mirror who are like no we're good right now yeah. you're 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 living it you know you don't need us to help
0: exactly yeah and um i guess the last thing i just want to talk about because we talked a lot about nerd culture and just saying that I think it's very interesting how it's becoming the new cool you know about mm-hmm. how i'd almost like to thank the mcu and marvel for really bringing everyone out of their front doors and talking about comics talking about video games mm-hmm. talking about how it can be implemented productively in a modern society and i think you're a great example of a way to implement that so
1: <laughs> and it's i think it's also a great way of, for kids that have never been cool before, <laughs> to sort of give them that opportunity to say, oh, maybe I can integrate with my peers in this way, and yeah. that maybe my interests will be shared.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's also redefining what cool means, and I mean, it's easier to say this now that I'm kind of out of my childhood, but <laughs> coolness is a level of comfortability, really, at the end of the day, so I think that it's, if these kids that felt uh, alienated in the past, that they have this sense of comfortability and community with the Attic Center and with themselves in general, they're the coolest kids on the block.
1: <laughs> I mean, that, I think that is, you're absolutely right, the best thing about the Attic, is that it is a place where the queer kids are cool, where being queer in all of its different forms, being trans, being black, being able to look at direct action and say, that's what I want to do. I want to make sure that my people are represented, are taken care of, and are pulled out of the margins and into this mainstream without losing our culture, that I think those are the cool kids at the Attic, and that's a pretty incredible space.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm glad to hear that that resource is being offered to the people of the wonderful Philadelphia. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jacob. And uh, I think it was a great episode. And thank you listeners for uh, staying on the train the whole time.
1: Thank you. Stay cool.